everyone, welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 11th of June with me, Ian Welsh. At the Innovation Forum Future of Climate Action conference a few weeks ago, my colleague Toby Webb was joined by a panel of experts from Danone, Nestle, Cargill and Everland to discuss natural climate solutions and how they can be implemented successfully to deliver greenhouse gas reductions at scale. We've got some extended highlights of the session coming up later and also an update about what's happening next week at the final conference and innovation forum's spring series on the future of food. That's to come, but first, some sustainable business news. In the lead up to the COP26 meeting later in the year, there continues to be plenty of announcements and initiatives keeping climate change mitigation firmly top of the news agenda. Representing more than $41 trillion in assets, 457 financial institutions have signed a new global investor statement calling for greater efforts from government on climate change. Specifically, the investors are asking for 1. Strengthen national 2030 commitments before COP26 that align with a 1.5 Celsius warming pathway and a phased transition to net zero emissions until later than 2050. 2. A clear pathway to net zero by mid-century, including decarbonisation roadmaps for every carbon-intensive sector. 3. Domestic policies to deliver these targets that include incentives for private sector investment in zero emission solutions. Carbon pricing, the removal of fossil fuel subsidies on stretching deadlines, alongside the phasing out of coal-based electricity generation, are also on the list, as are the development of just transition plans for affected workers and communities. 4. Enhanced pandemic recovery plans that support the transition to net zero and enhance resilience. And 5th, implementation of mandatory climate risk disclosure requirements aligned with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. A comprehensive list indeed. The investors were convened by the Investor Agenda Group of seven non-profits committed to investor climate action plans. Climate Group Global Witness has called for banks based in China to review their agribusiness funding policies that, a new report says, have accelerated deforestation and biodiversity loss and impacted water cycles and climate. The research found that between January 2013 and April 2020, Chinese banks provided financial support of $22.5 billion to companies producing and trading commodities with high deforestation risks. China is in the midst of revising laws for its domestic banks amid an ever-growing demand for commodities such as soy and palm oil. And Global Witness, it seems, has jumped on the chance to lobby for change. A recent report on Bloomberg Business Week caught the Innovation Forum eye, looking at the rise and rise in the US of sustainability in the egg farming sector. Organic and free-range eggs already have around a third of the US market, despite costing many times the price of intensively raised conventional eggs. However, it appears that the share could jump to as much as 70% if there is also a more widespread adoption of regenerative agriculture practices, including those that sequester carbon, allowing the eggs to be marketed as fighting climate change. The Bloomberg piece says that the US egg industry's moves in this direction is perhaps the first major test as to whether products from regenerative agriculture can attract premium prices. The trick, of course, is for Regen Agri to not be for niche premium products, but for it to be rolled out more into the mainstream. But consumer reaction will be interesting nonetheless. Marking World Oceans Day on 8th of June, UK supermarket chain Waitrose announced a scheme to introduce recycled plastic, material potentially destined for the oceans, into packaging across 71 products, including fruit, vegetables and ready meals. In total, the brand says it will mitigate the use of more than 10 tonnes of plastic annually by the end of 2021, as the recycled material is introduced into packaging for ready meals, rising to 90 tonnes once it is rolled out into fruit and vegetable categories too. The recycled material is from litter collected within 30 miles of a coastline in regions of Southeast Asia identified as most at risk from plastic pollution under the Prevented Ocean Plastic Scheme. 
Waitrose also has the aim of reducing single-use plastic by 20% in absolute terms by the end of the year. Greenpeace has identified Waitrose as having the broadest and most rapid plastic reduction of any UK supermarket chain. Coming up next week is Innovation Forum's Future of Food event. And a couple of days ago, I caught up with the event organiser, Nani Brookadil. So we have the Future of Food event coming up next week from June the 15th to the 17th. Looking forward to that very much. And joining me now is my colleague, Nani Brookadil, who's leading on the event. Welcome back to the podcast, Nani. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? I'm great. So what's happening right now in terms of preparation for next week? We're pretty much set to go. We've got around 200 attendees already in the platform. They're sending messages and setting up private meetings. We have a two-week window where all our attendees can do this. So all of next week, people can have private meetings with other people on the platform and all of the week after as well. So if you decide to join us last minute, you'll get your login link pretty much immediately and you can catch up and make the most of this networking time as well. So let's all go at the moment on that. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's a great function to be able to set up meetings on the conference platform. It's a bit like arranging to have a quiet chat during a coffee break. So it's great that uh, so many delegates are taking up that opportunity. What sessions are you looking forward to most next week? I would obviously say all of them, but in particular, I do love our Dragon's Den session that rounds off the end of the three days. I think it closes the conference really nicely because it introduces the audience to some really progressive companies who will obviously no doubt play a big role in shaping the future of food, as we call it. So this year we're hearing from three companies all doing a range of different things. One is making cell-based collagen and gelatin. Another is using the world's most powerful dehydration technology to capture whole food nutrition. And the final one is turning industrial CO2 into food system ingredients. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about all of that and how they can be used sort of in the more mainstream food and agricultural systems. Excellent. Yes, that will be great. And as you say, it's also a nice way to round off the conference with a forward-looking session where we're talking about the new technology that's coming through. And yeah. we've got some good dragons on there as well. It should be a great session. I'm actually looking forward to one the previous day in particular, the seafood industry session. It's always fascinating mm-hmm. talking about seafood supply chains and getting into the problems around overfishing, touches on climate change all the human rights and forced labour issues as well. So there's a really lot to talk about. So I'm looking forward to getting into the nitty-gritty of that next Wednesday. Tickets are still available. So if you do want to join us next week, then you can still get tickets via the Innovation Forum website and do hope you can join us. But until then, thanks very much indeed and see you next week, Narnie. Bye. The Innovation Forum team is working on our autumn conference programme. First out the gate on the 28th and 29th of September is the Future of Climate Action US event, focusing on how to tackle greenhouse gases and supply chains. Already signed up as speakers and panellists are senior representatives from Kellogg, Alaska Airlines, AB Bev, PepsiCo, Oxfam America and more. To save $400 in tickets, you can register at a special launch rate before Friday 18th of June. At the first Innovation Forum Future of Climate Action Conference a few weeks ago, my colleague Toby Webb was joined by Marie-Pierre Bousquet-Leconte, Science-Based Targets Implementation Director at Danone, Connor McMahon, Climate Delivery Manager at Nestle, Robert Horster, Global Sustainability Lead for Agriculture, Supply Chains and Food Ingredients at Cargill, and Joshua Tossison, President of Everland. They had a fascinating discussion about natural climate solutions and how to implement them. Coming up now are some highlights. We join the session just as Toby is inviting Marie-Pierre to make some opening comments. Marie-Pierre, why don't we start with you? I'd love to hear how this conversation is developing in Danon and where you think it's going to go. Firstly, my name is Marie-Pierre Bousquet-Leconte. 
And currently, I am the Science-Based Target Implementation Director for Danone. So what does it mean? It means that I am contributing to align Danone's climate ambition with the 1.5 degree IPCC scenario. And we are contemplating to set our science-based target in line with 1.5C shortly, and we are engaged to net zero by 2050. Agriculture for us is really at the heart of activity, and we are convinced that it is as well part of the solution in the fight to climate change, and that we can help nature to regenerate itself. So that's why we are currently really promoting and developing new generative models with our suppliers. And to achieve impact at scale, we absolutely need to co-build solution and to empower a new generation of farmers. So we are building very close relationships, providing technical and as well economic support. And programs are deployed in all regions where we operate. And some of delivering very promising results. So we are especially through our regenerative agriculture platform engaging in US with different partners, and we launch a soil health initiative. Just to give you a few examples, and we already got very promising results, not only on let's say carbon reduction, but as well on different aspects such as biodiversity protection, water protection and bringing to farmers a new way and a more sustainable way to operate. What is pretty challenging currently is that farmers do not have the financial capacity to move on their own and this transition is requiring, I would say, material significant financial resources. And what we are aiming to do is really to co-build solutions as well to attract investors to finance the transition to uh, regenerative agriculture. Hopefully, we are seeing very promising signals, especially from when you see the new schemes and incentives designed by the Biden administration, also in Europe with the new Green Deal. And at Danone, what we did for a pretty long time now, for more than 10 years ago, we created some innovation funds, such as the Ecosystem Fund, and as well the Livelihoods Carbon Fund. The Ecosystem Funds, just provide you an illustration, is developing some sustainable sourcing solution with high social impact, as well improve the livelihoods of communities and to create jobs, and it's at country business unit level. So it is really embedded in the business strategy of our regions. And we are as well partnering with financial investors, such as investment banks, and as well with NGO. The Livelihoods Carbon Funds, in which now we are more than 10 investors, deploying some projects of agroforestry, reforestation, as well the development of sourcing, new sustainable sourcing strategies. And this providing to investors, and especially Danone, high-quality carbon credits for the neutrality of our brands, especially Evian is currently carbon neutral worldwide. So in the introduction, as I was mentioning, we are targeting net zero emission by 2050. We see, fortunately, an increasing number of companies engaged in this trajectory. 
and we need that it is what we need to do to limit global warming. So hopefully what we want to stress on is that collaboration is key, not amongst the private sector, but as well with public and policymakers and financial sectors. So we absolutely need to, and it is our conviction, our deep conviction, that we need to, again, drive the transition to more resilient food system and to uh, be in a virtual circle and to move more resilient ecosystems. What you're saying then, correct me if I'm wrong, are natural climate solutions just another term for what you were already doing that encompasses regenerative agriculture, carbon sequestration in soil, working with farmers on their own sustainability? Does it add anything new? Or is it just another word for what you might have called sustainable agriculture? So at Danone, I would say regenerative agriculture is really a very holistic approach that is promoting uh, the decarbonization of the, the milk production, especially, but not only. Huh? It is as well for other crops, for, for fruits, etc. We are as well in the same team. We have a team that is the water cycle, so really dedicated to tackle water uh, scarcity. And we are working together at landscape level. So I would say I was focusing on regenerative agriculture again because it is key to cut our emissions huh, due to their weight, that is 60%. Huh? Globally, the scope 3 is 90%. But we are really uh, working on different aspects, biodiversity, animal welfare, and as well, uh, a key element is empowering a new generation of farmers. Huh? Connor, I suppose the same question for you. Is NCS, Natural Climate Solutions, just another word for what you're already doing? Or is it a helpful new paradigm to shift things forward and drive scale? What what are your views? I think my views are the solutions aren't new. These solutions have been around and have been implanted for quite some time. I think it's a really nice, interesting way of grouping some of these solutions that can be provided by nature to help us achieve some of our corporate commitments. It's more of a, a nice way of grouping and framing natural climate solutions that also have a pro-biodiversity benefit side to it. And they're not new, but it, it's a new grouping and it can be a useful grouping for pushing forwards. I think the paradigm shift that I've seen is before we were looking at doing less bad things. We were looking at stopping deforestation in our supply chains using less fertilizer. I think the, the shift change is this positive element that, that natural climate solutions can bring, this restoration element, increasing soil carbon stock, increasing above ground carbon stock. So maybe that's the new element to it, the focus on restoration or bringing restoration into the same picture as doing less harm. I think it's a nice way of, of doing it because you can't just talk about the positive things you're doing if you're still doing bad things in your supply chain. So you need to get yeah, forest positive, as we said uh, before, it's kind of do less harm, stop doing any further harm and then continue to restore into the future. And I think Natural Climate Solutions groups that together quite nicely. Just give us a brief overview of where things are with you guys at the moment on this subject overall. Like natural climate solutions, I think there's lots of estimates that it's going to play a huge role in us achieving one and a half to agree aligned future. So maybe 20 or 30 percent of the reductions and removals we need will come through nature as a global community. For Nestle, it's even more than that. We think that roughly 50 percent of the reductions that we need to achieve our one and a half degree aligned commitment will come from natural climate solutions. So it's a massive cornerstone of, of what we want to do going forwards. For Nestle, just kind of obviously the three sides that, have, that are always there, the conservation efforts. So making sure we achieve our deforestation-free commitments on time. Obviously, there's been challenges. They've been postponed. We need to meet those. If we miss those targets, it doesn't matter how many trees we plant. It's, we're still going to miss what we need to do in the future. So uh, hitting our deforestation-free milestones is a cornerstone. We're also joining up lots of global initiatives like the LEAF Coalition. So helping governments protect tropical forests. So much more kind of 
let's work together to protect these forests. Let's not just work through our isolated supply chains. So trying to explore these kind of collaborative models to restore forests that are still under threat from commodity trade. So huge focus on conservation. Then it will be the regenerative agriculture agenda. It's a huge one on, on the Nestle's books. So we've committed quite a lot of, of money and investment into transitioning our farming base into regenerative agriculture because we know it comes at a cost. We know that we need to invest in this. We know we need to reward farmers and incentivize farmers to adopt these practices and to deliver the environmental outcomes we want them to deliver. Putting money on the table, obviously, there's questions around regenerative agriculture still. We know what the good practices are. How do we determine what a truly regenerative system is? What level of actual soil monitoring and ongoing monitoring is involved? The permanence question. So yes, there's questions around that, but we know we need to answer those questions and as an industry move forward on that topic and bring farmers along with us on the journey. And then third part, restoration. So we have a huge commitment on tree planting at 200 million trees by 2030, 20 million trees roughly every year if we divide it that way. So a huge effort in reforestation. We also look at kind of peatland restoration projects. We're looking at wetland and grassland restoration projects. So yeah, a big focus on restoring lands. Our focus on restoration is very much in the sourcing landscapes that we buy from. We think it's very important that we look at our sourcing landscapes rather than just trying to find the cheapest removal project that's available on the market. We want to go to our landscapes, engage the communities that we're sourcing from, engage at that landscape level to find the right solutions to, to implement. So we're very much in favor of restoration of the landscapes that we rely on and supporting our sourcing communities to deliver that. A quick clarification. What's the sort of boundary between tree planting and forest restoration? Because it's one thing to plant a monoculture and it's another thing to restore a forest. And restoring a forest is incredibly difficult and complex and expensive and painstaking. It's like the toughest puzzle anyone's ever seen. But, but tree planting is also not getting particularly good press if it's a monoculture. So how do you define planting versus restoration in your planning? Well, it's about planting the right trees. It's not about planting the trees that grow the fastest and sequester the highest amount of carbon. And I think this comes back to why we focus on the landscapes that we're sourcing from. If we just buy carbon removal credits from tree planting, it's likely that those projects have been optimized to deliver the maximum carbon, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But if we're working in the landscapes that we're sourcing from, we have a, a vested interest for that to be a kind of sustainable, biodiverse, healthy forest and making sure that the trees that are being planted represent the species that should be planted in that area, consider I don't know, the, cli- the local climates, et cetera, consider the needs of the communities nearby if they still need to be able to gather and, and use forests for their own purposes. So yeah, it's local solutions to reforestation, planting the right tree mix and doing it the right way in the local context, not just having maximum carbon approach that you apply every hectare you can find around the world. So the tree planting is really part of a landscape restoration approach, really? It's tree planting on farm, so shade trees, introduction to kind of coffee and cocoa farms, and then reforestation in the landscape, which is definitely part of our forest restoration side. It's a number of trees going in the ground, but that ties into trees on farm, trees in landscapes as part of proper forest restoration efforts. Robert, let me turn to you. What does all this mean to your cargo? I mean, you've been working in agriculture for 150 years as a company. Has natural climate solutions changed the game or is it kind of more of what you were already doing? It's a new term obviously, but I don't think it's something that we've been doing thus far. I see three new elements. The first element is that we have a recognition that agriculture serves to nourish the world, but also can be a solution to the climate change issue, which is clearly one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue that we're facing as a planet today. 
And there's plenty of research on that. In fact, if you get to a, a two degree increase in temperature and average temperature, your yields already start declining. So MIT has done extensive research on that. And it's true, let alone what happens if you go two and a half, three degrees. So it's in a very important aspect to remember that agriculture is serving to feed the world as well as be a solution to climate change. Then I get to the point that the previous two speakers also mentioned is that holistic approach, right? Where you say, okay, look, it's about mitigating climate change through sequestration of carbon, through restoring watersheds, through increasing biodiversity. If you do restoration, for instance, or if simply if you do regenerative agricultural practices, but also, if you think about this, it can actually bring economic benefits to farmers. So the point that Marie was mentioning on engaging farmers really resonates with Cargill, business for 155 years of you know, engaging farmers. The other thing, Toby, that your climate solutions brings is the opportunity to mobilize capital in a significant way. You think about carbon markets, right? We see carbon markets basically emerging everywhere. And the question, of course, is what type of carbon credits are you buying or are you generating? So we have to be mindful of the quality right, and the credibility of those credits. If they are entered into a reputable registry, right, and if, if at the end of the day those credits become bankable and credible, then they do actually serve to both remove and reduce carbon. But there's this mobilization of capital, and McKinsey have done this extensive research into that, and they've, in fact, mobilized the whole industry around scaling carbon markets, building on the success of compliance markets, but also uh, plain and simple commodity markets. There is now an opportunity to scale these solutions offered by carbon sequestration and removal and reduction by mobilizing capital into those markets, right? And so you can actually scale. It's, it doesn't become sort of a project that Danone or Nestle or Cargo are doing. It, it actually becomes large, right? So that's what I see as the three new elements, right? It's the holistic approach. It's mobilizing capital and also the realization that farming being 25% of emissions or whatever estimate is out there, but let's say 25% as a, as a conservative estimate, also is part of the solution. I think that's what NCS actually brings as new insights. The development of those markets is clearly very exciting, but they're still pretty nascent, right? If your CEO rang you up and said, Robert, when's this happening? What would your prediction be? It depends on how you define success. If you take the lens of mobilizing sufficient capital to drive nature-based climate solutions, between five to 10 years is probably at this stage, based on what we know to be true today, a realistic estimate. I'm a bit biased because I read the McKinsey study, and but they also are in this sort of the same time frame. But if you then go, okay, but now actually you're stacking up all the commitments that companies are making, you know, both in our supply chain and out of our supply chain, you add them up and you look at the ability of the market to actually serve that demand. I don't think five to 10 years is enough. I think there will be sufficient time needed to scale those markets. And when I say markets, we shouldn't be thinking of plain and simple commodity markets because the carbon market is everything but that. It is super complex if you think about different solutions how you generate the credits, where the credits are generated, what registry they're in, and so on and so forth, what they actually bring. The credible credit is actually that when you think about nature-based solutions, actually bring value to the farmer. So the farmer in the first place has to see the value. Otherwise, it's not going to be a lasting solution. If you think about that, you think about the ability of capacity, if you will, of nature and agriculture to generate those credits, and you stack it up against the demand that's out there, I think we're looking at more than five to 10 years. Let's hope that can accelerate. But of course, lots of work to be done about verification and accounting and monitoring and so on. Joshua, tell us about Everland. Of course, everyone, I think, knows who Danone and Cargill and Nestle are. Everland, perhaps a slightly smaller brand, but you've been doing some fascinating work for many years on marketing credits from some of the best projects in the world, which are doing exactly the subject of this session. So briefly, tell us about Everland and tell us how the solutions are evolving. We're a conservation organization that wears the clothes of a marketing company. 
we have one thing that we do. We partner with high-impact, community-based, wildlife-centric, Red Plus projects in the developing world. Those projects do amazing work to address the drivers of deforestation in their landscapes. And what we do is exclusively represent them in the carbon markets. And so we help communities to monetize their carbon assets and unlock this challenge that many have been speaking about, which is driving sustainable finance at scale to the ground to really provide durable and material incentives and then rewards for effective climate action by halting deforestation. So that's what we do. I want to like take a step back in our conversation the question that I think is really motivating a lot of this discussion is like, what's resource efficient, cost effective, practical for business to achieve an impact at scale? And there's a good question to ask, which is what is the impact at scale that we in the world can make that makes the most difference for the world? And I just want to put a little plug in in this regard for something that we've talked peripherally about so far, but I think this actually needs to be right in the middle, which is that forests, existing, standing forests, mature ancient forests, primary forests, especially the tropical forests, are at the center of the two most important ecological crises that we're facing, which is the loss of life, loss of species, and climate change. The loss of standing forest is responsible for just a tick under 10% of total greenhouse gas emissions. Any projection, any of the pathways to get us down in the next 10 years toward achieving climate stabilization at one and a half degrees, every one of them requires essentially a total elimination of deforestation in 10 years. You can't get there unless you do that. That's not to speak of the million or so species that are imminently at risk of extinction. And of course, the problem with that is you can't restore the species when it's gone, at least not presently. Maybe with CRISPR in the future, we're going to be able to do that. That's kind of interesting. But as far as I understand, when you lose it, you lose it. And so there's something of precious and irrecoverable value that doesn't have a price tag in the market today that is under real threat right now. So we believe that the most critical impact to be made at this time, this isn't a either or this or that, it's both and, but we really want to light a focus on the need to halt tropical deforestation. The observation that we have from working on the ground in this, um, and I spent a number of years before this assignment responsible for field programs at Rainforest Alliance. So we did a lot of work with actually all of your companies and large scale work on the ground in your commodity landscapes, training and technical assistance and all of that. We really believe that bottom-up, community-based, landscape-level approaches are really, really important to this because this is where the drivers of deforestation actually manifest in the landscape. When you're channeling resources, wherever they're coming from, ultimately they have to land in like real places doing real things, engaging in the real work to reshape incentives in people's behavior at scale, if you're talking about protecting the forest. And so we think it's obviously like a moral imperative for all of us, but I recognize because we've been in this work for a long time that it's also like a very pragmatic issue for supply chains because all of these commodities depend on the ecosystem services of a functioning landscape and the forest is at the center of the provision of those ecosystem services. There's a scale and an urgency thing that are coming together, and it makes this problem very hard. We need to build on proven approaches, things that we know actually work right now. 
we've never done this before, this kind of an action, this kind of a scale, but we do need to stand on top of results that seem to show, hey, this is ready to go bigger. And I do believe project-based Red Plus has really emerged as a very high-impact solution. This imperative to deliver resources in a fair and abundant way to the ground to reward and incentivize communities for effective action is like exactly what this mechanism does. So far, Voluntary Red Plus has grown to about 300 million tons, a little more than that over the past 10 years, and it's growing, have been eliminated. Those emissions have been reduced. So that's about equivalent to taking six and a half million passenger vehicles off the road for this period of time. And to the point about financing that you brought, Robert, I mean, yeah, we're seeing this. Indicatively, your five to 10 years feels about right because the amount of capital that is lining up now to work on and really expand this mechanism is lining up fast in our world for sure. It's extremely exciting. And the reason why it's exciting is because what does success mean? Let's not lose it so that we have to restore it. Like we don't want to keep adding to the problem of needing to do more restoration. Like we have to, it's like the bathtub. We have to turn the spigot off, not so that we don't have to keep like increasing the drain size. So, you know, we want to stop the deforestation. This means that we need to meaningfully engage people who would stand to do better by taking the forest down. And we were talking especially about like smallholder farmers who have poor agricultural practices and lack the finance needed to really turn it around. This is where Red Plus comes in as an incredible catalytic complementary solution to this problem. And Connor, I can remember being in Sumatra in one of the Nescafe coffee, Robusta coffee landscapes some years ago when we were doing a joint program with you at Rainforest Alliance. And they were doing amazing work, but it was like right at the edge of this protected area. It was impossible to stop people anyway from encroaching and moving further in. There just weren't enough incentives. You couldn't bring enough money to bear, and it's not practical. But this is an interesting approach where you can combine effective protection and engaging the community in the effective protection and then receiving financial benefits. And we've seen, like, even in coffee, that work really well over in, say, Peru in the Alto Mayo landscape, Alto Mayo forest. Now, I'm happy to talk more about that. There's a lot of examples of that type of success that show, I think, really clearly there's an interesting, valuable solution that's here today that can really help complement these kinds of efforts, do something that's extraordinarily meaningful, centrally meaningful for the climate, while also providing a mechanism to deliver the financing exactly to the folks that really need it the most. What's the level of business interest from companies like the ones on this panel in buying those credits and investing in Red Plus projects. I'm just curious as to how that's accelerating and whether or not the term you know, Red Plus and these projects are actually well known enough by business as a solution. This is our biggest challenge and opportunity. No, I think this mechanism isn't as well as understood as it should be and as, as well as it will be because we're really going to work on this now. As far as the materiality of this, so I'll just speak to our company. This year, just from the red projects that we represent exclusively, and that's 16 projects that generate about 16 million annual tons a year of emissions reductions, of whom a couple are just new to the portfolio, we have sold um, about 35 million tons since the start of this year. The year-on-year growth from previous years, it's a massive step change. Awareness actually is growing, and especially like the fundamental case for why we need to protect forests 
is sort of like, it's all settled science now. There's some things that are unclear. There's some things that are clear. What's clear is halting deforestation is an imperative. What is clear to us is that there is a really good way to do that, that is right for scale. And more and more companies, I think, are aligning with that view as they take a little deeper look into it. That's been our experience. It strikes me that Red Plus needs to perhaps do a bit of a rebrand in some way. It's a complicated term, but it also is unfortunately associated with offsets in the sense that offsets were, you know, there, there were some dodgy ones discredited some years ago and there are still some dodgy ones now. But Red Plus, actually, when I look at the projects, really you're helping organizations do far more than just cut carbon. I mean, it's preserving ecosystems and it's enhancing livelihoods and it's helping companies meet their SDG targets as well. Isn't that an important factor to help distinguish good Red Plus from some of the carbon offsets, which companies feel a bit guilty about? doing as a last resort. Absolutely. And I think that like the emergence of some third party standards like the so-called SD Vista standard are really helpful in this regard because they're providing the capacity now to differentiate and validate claims concerning the quality and the actual impact level of the work. Because the whole heart of this work with Red Plus is that you're getting the emissions reductions, but you're generating tremendous co-benefits for biodiversity and for communities. Our work as a company, we're kind of standing in, right now, we have a very extensive impact field level impact reporting program that we do and it's all aligned to the SDGs and so forth so that we can provide companies with an ESG toolkit to integrate all that work and all that work that's flowing out of the field into their reporting. But to scale this, this is what's really necessary. This is the kind of thing that we're actually doing as a business is kind of preparing for the scale by investing in new monitoring and evaluation systems, impact data reporting, and so forth. So the actual things that are happening the things that are actually happening can be credibly demonstrated to be happening and then utilized in the context of reporting about real achievements that are being made as a result of these investments. We will publish the compensation in full in a few weeks' time, so do look out for that. And also go to the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and podcasts. Just published is the next in an op-ed series from sustainable business commentator and YouTuber Malin Baker, who this time casts a critical eye over the B Corp movement. But that's all for now. I've been Welsh. And until next week, goodbye.